0: Today on the show, we welcome back on a manager and producer who was the head honcho at Bellevue Productions. Before his management career, he worked at Village Roadshow and Appian Way. Back in 2004, he read the screenplays for Crash and Million Dollar Baby and predicted that both would win Academy Awards, as told by Franklin Leonard anyway. And every client he seems to sign ends up on the annual blacklist, so you know he's got a good taste in both clients' and material. He is our good friend, John Zalzerny. Welcome back, John. Hey, buddy. Good to see you. How you been?
1: uh strange times strange,
0: strange times, times indeed
1: but uh honestly i've been fortunate to uh be pretty good through them or at least trying to trying to keep my trying to keep things going as much as possible but yeah it's you know take it day by day take it day by day
0: yeah because the last time we met at your office and it was probably not that long before this whole thing started maybe a month or so before this whole thing so it of seems up. like
1: an eternity but yeah right. i think the The biggest concern, one of the bigger concerns back then was a potential WGA strike, Mm. uh, which did not come to pass, um, but work stoppage occurred nonetheless.
0: Right, right. Uh, (coughs) Interestingly enough. Um, Now, I wanted to actually start with, I noticed on your Twitter, you've had a number of very detailed and very informative tweets of late. Uh, you've been on a number of times before, so if, if writers are interested in learning more about you, about Bellevue, uh, about just general topics of interest regarding managers, lit managers, and, and, and the way management companies work, you can check out scriptsandscribes.com slash John Zalzerny. He has a lot of interviews already. But this time, I did want to touch base on some of the things that you had talked about in more recently on your Twitter. Um, maybe we can start first with you You started a thread recently on formatting tips for writers who are working with managers, agents, and producers. Mm. Uh, and I wanted to maybe go in depth a little bit for maybe for some of those who haven't seen your tweet yet, although you should definitely check out his Twitter. It's at John Zauzerny, uh, but also to sort of go more in depth into it. Can you maybe talk a little bit about the thread and, and maybe mention some of the, the what you would talked about in that thread, just basics. It had a lot of good information about formatting your material and how to do it properly.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thread, it's so funny because it did end up being more popular than I necessarily imagined, but the thread was basically came out of, um, some of the issues I've seen with clients, especially early on, because, you know, when you're a writer and you're not working with representation or producers, you're just working with yourself and maybe showing your scripts to your friends, your circle of acquaintances or whatever. Um, you know, you don't need to be quite as rigorous about, you know, naming or things like that, because like, you know, the only person reading it is yourself or maybe, you know, some of your friends um, or colleagues in terms of, you know, your writer's circle or whatever. But, you know, when you start working with a producer or a manager or an agent, you know, suddenly you're working with people who have a lot of clients and, or a lot of projects. Um, And so it was just some basic, things that you know i have usually have to kind of tell my clients which is like for example um if you have a file don't just send to me and say brainstorm document you know version two or something like that you know because it ends up in my kind of like i have a folder on my computer that is synced to like my dropbox and therefore all my computers as well as my ipad which is where I do the majority of my reading <coughs> called temporary work folder which is like kind of like just your like the work that I'm working on at the moment as opposed to like, you know, my Bellevue productions files, which is where like all those files go, legal files go, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I put that, I have like drafts, notes, outlines, kind of different folders. And so I'll put a draft, let's say we're working on a brainstorm document. I'll put it into my outlines folder. Now look, I look at that thing. I'm like, okay, who's brainstorm document and is this, which is, what kind is it relating it to? How recent is this one, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, okay, name it you know, uh clients, you know, I'm gonna make a client, Bill Row, um, and then brainstorm document, and then, you know, August third, 2020. Um, and then uh so then I know exactly which brainstorm document is, or even more if it's like a better example is it's you know a project called, you know, carpet floor. I'm just looking around my office. <laughs> um, you know, that's the name of the exciting new project. And um, you know, it's like, you know, sometimes clients would be like outline five or something. And I'm like, uh, that doesn't help me in the terms of organization, but it's like outline dash 8320. I'll be like, okay, I can throw that to the folders and I'll know, you know, if I'm going back to like look at an earlier document, I'll know which folder file it is. Uh, please send the documents unless there's like a specific reason that we've asked for them. Otherwise, always at PDFs. It is re otherwise I have to dump the FDX or the document to. PDF, or honestly, I'll just ask you to do that and resend it, um, just because that's the easiest way for us to read it. Um, always put page numbers in. Um, that you know, it'll be automatically done um, on screenplays, whether it's Final Draft or whatever. But you know, in Microsoft Word, if you're doing an outline, it's not necessarily done. And you know, it's just I know that like some a PDF document, like GoodReader, which is what I use on my iPad will say, like, page two, but, like, it won't say that unless I tap it and, like, look at it, whereas if you just add, automatically have it, bottom of the the page, page two, I mean, like, okay, cool, so here on page two, middle of the page, I don't have to, like, wonder what page I'm on, it's just little things like that, it's not a big deal or anything, Um, and there are things that can get resolved really quickly, but um, they're just little things that I think, A, are helpful to your reps and or producers, and to... make you look a little more polished, a little more professional. The biggest one that has been an actual issue is what I would call is, is revision mode um, in final draft. And I'm sure there's a similar mode in other screenplay programs. Um, and that is essentially, let's say you've done a first draft, I give you notes on it and you're doing a second draft or a rewrite or whatever, <clears throat> obviously um, at that point you want to throw into revision mode. So any changes you make are starred and I can tell, Oh, like, There's five, there's a bunch of changes on page two. There's no changes in page three, so on. And that is the standard across the industry. Um, You know, executives, directors, everybody, they don't want to reread the script from scratch and try to figure out themselves what's been changed. They want to be able to know immediately upon glance, okay, this changed. Okay, this didn't change. You know what I'm saying? Um, And that's just something you need to learn. Because it will, if you're going to be a professional screenwriter, which is obviously, I mean, I assume the goal of most people, um, that's something you're going to need to learn, you know, for when, certainly when you go into production and when they, they, what's called locking the script. So they're not adding kind of pages and scenes. It's like, there's a locked script. Those scene numbers are connected to a a schedule, to, you know, all kinds of other things. And you can't just like add things without people noticing. Um, So that's, it's definitely going to come into play if you were to have a movie go into production um but it's definitely even if you're doing a studio assignment if you're working with a producer you need to learn how to do that and so that's some really standard stuff and to be blunt the earlier you learn it in your career the more familiar and comfortable you can get with it um and yeah so like when I have a client send me a revised document revised certainly revised screenplay I need to see what's changed easily and if I they haven't done it I just ask them to do it you can go back in and do it after the fact but it's a pain in the ass as opposed to automatically being, being done. And then with Microsoft Word, I personally find their revision mode um, difficult. And But all I need is I need to be able to tell when I glance at it, whether it's like the text has been highlighted in red, which is usually where revision mode is, or if it's just been, I tell my clients just to bold the new stuff. And that way I can look at the new outline and be like, oh, this has changed, this has changed, this has changed. And that way I'm not rereading. People sometimes are like, oh, well, I, I want you to read the whole thing in full so you really understand the real simple fact is, like, if I've read it before, just the brain of the eye has a natural thing where, like, oh, I've read this before. I'm going to skip because, oh, this is old information. And if you change a single sentence in there, I can skip over it because I don't notice what's been changed. Um, and also, it's really irritating to have to do that. Um, and, you know, you just want to be um, cognizant and, and uh, you know, thinking towards your the people you're working with, especially when you consider that, wow, this may be the only thing you're working on. It's probably not the only thing they're working on. And you want to make it as easy as possible for them to give you coherent, thoughtful notes.
0: Right, absolutely. Um, And then the other thread that I thought saw more recently on your Twitter that I thought was extremely helpful and useful for a lot of writers out there is when you're talking about the, the aspects that separate casual, quote, writing for fun screenwriters uh, from professionally minded ones and the difference being intention of writing. Uh, can you go into that a little bit about uh, what that thread was about and, and maybe elaborate on, on what you talked about in the, yeah. the thread?
1: Of course, yeah. So you kind of came to me because I was talking to a friend who's a film manager. and He was asking me about, <clears throat> he said one of his clients had thought about kind of doing a music biopic um, uh, you know which obviously I produced and or developed a lot of those some of which have been on the blacklist you know so on and so forth um, and um, and so he's like oh do you, how do you do that and what do you think and I was like well why are you doing this like oh well it would probably be pretty easy to get it in the blacklist which you know maybe maybe not I've had music biopics that did end up in the blacklist I've had scripts I was like oh this is definitely the kind of thing that people are going to really connect to and, and it could end up on the annual blacklist and they don't. Um, so there's no, like, guarantee whatsoever that, like, you write this subject matter, it ends up in the blacklist. It's it's not just the subject matter. It's also your ability to write it, whether or not the subject is interesting to uh, the reader, you know, um, the readers out in town and so on and so forth. But then I asked them kind of the more important question, which is, um, well, does your client want to write, is a music biopic, as I mentioned, does she want to write more music biopics after that? oh, no, no, she really writes thriller or sci-fi or whatever it was. Um, and I was like, well, then what's the point in getting on the blacklist and becoming well-known for writing a music biopic? It doesn't really push your career forward. It might get you a little attention, but then every single time everyone meets you, they're like, I love your music biopic of, you know, such a person. You know, we have some ideas for other music biopics or this. And they're like, oh, no, I really write horror, thriller, or sci-fi. And it's like, okay, well, that's not how I, that's not how I became aware of you you know? Um, and so what I was thinking of it was like writing with intention. I um, mean, there's multiple kind of layers to that. The first is, you know, and the more simply is write the kind of screenplays that you want to be known for. So if someone's like, you know, so let's say you love horror screenplays, you write a great horror screenplay. It ends up selling and, or getting made or on the blacklist or what, what have you, um, or people just read and like it. Um, then, You want to be able to say, oh, you like my horror screenplay? Great. Here's a bunch of other horror ideas I have. Or you have a horror idea? Great. I love to write horror. And it's just, it's a really simple thing. You know, it's, it's, you know, Hollywood is very simple. If you've directed a music movie, they're going to bring you more music movies. You've directed a action movie, they're going to bring you more action movies. No one's going to Michael Bay or David Fincher with romantic comedy ideas, you know? And nobody, you know, very few people, you know, We're going to, you know, vice versa, bring a romantic person well-known for romantic comedies, you know, dark sci-fi ideas, you know, which isn't to say that hasn't happened. But I think those directors had to fight against the flow to get those things done, to kind of reinvent themselves. Um, And so, you know, the same thing is true of writers. And, you know, as I've often said, it's better to be on a list than to be on no lists, you know. Um, which is the people who's like, I read everything. And it's like, great, but why don't you become really well-known for one thing? And you can obviously reinvent yourself. Um, you know, I think Scott Alexander, Larry Karastewski were really well-known for the Problem Child movies, and they didn't just want to do that. And so they ended up, um, you know, kind of having uh, an idea for a project with Ed Wood, which obviously became the movie Ed Wood. And then they became the biopic guys. They've written Man on the Moon. They've written um, Dolomite they've written, um, gosh, there's something else that was awesome that they wrote, but anyway,s people versus Larry Flint. Um, so, you know, they're very well known for that. And so it's so like, what I had written in my, in my um, thread was, how does the script you're writing now set up the next script you're going to write the script you want to write after and kind of introduce people to your talent and what you do very, very well, you know? Um, and, you know, was, I, I think that intention of being like, okay, I want to see, not just, I'm not just writing the thing that I want to write because, like, whatever, Um, I'm writing the thing that I feel like I want to be known for, that I I intend this to be a stepping stone for the next step in my career, that's writing with intention as opposed to just writing for a hobby where you're just like, oh, I write the one thing that popped into my brain, you know, and then you look at connects to a larger question, larger um, uh, you know, ideas about writing finding a concept that really feels thought-provoking and interesting, but it's really about, you know, you're writing your screenplay doesn't exist in a vacuum. It will hopefully lead to more work and more attention. You know, um, and so it's writing with intention, and the intention is you're putting, you know, pushing your career forwards. You know, screenplay by screenplay. Mm-hmm.
0: It definitely sounds like having that game plan, having that, like you said, intention is very important. Now, is that something that you expect writers to sort of have? Does it make them more appealing as clients if they've already if they come to you when they meet with you? Obviously, if you've meet, you're meeting with them, you like their writing. But when mm-hmm. you're meeting with them, if they come to you and say, "Okay, so I you liked my horror thriller, whatever, I've got this horror thriller script, a second spec, I've got these other horror spec ideas," and meaning they are staying in their lane. They have an idea. I'd like to go to this company and this company because I think that I I meet their sensibility. They had this com- film come out last year. I have something that I think is similar or I, I read in the trades that, that they're trying to develop a, a sequel to this and I think I have a great pitch idea or something like that. Do, does that make them more appealing as a client rather than coming to you and saying, okay, what do you think my career should be you know and then trying to mold themselves to whatever you sort of push them towards
1: you know i would say um it definitely makes them i don't know if i'd say more appealing it it's helpful is what i guess i would say um i i would say i would actually flip it and then i'd be like um where problem's can arise if, if i've read your horror thrill and you're like cool that's great i want to write a wacky comedy next mm. you know um i'm not as concerned Um, one thing I always say is like, I don't really need you to have five screenplays before you approach me. I just need one really good one. And I, what I prefer is one really good one. And then two or three ideas, at least for what the next one is that feel like a natural offshoot of the screenplay that I love. But if I meet someone and they're like, I I loved your, your horror screenplay. And they're like, cool, I'm writing a wacky broad comedy next. I'm like, uh, that's a problem because I don't really understand how the horror thriller led me to believe that you could write a wacky comedy because those are very different skill sets. Um, And that is more often the issue where if someone's like written a horror thriller and you know, if they don't have any ideas, not great, but like if they don't and I can have a conversation with them, we can start coming up with ideas for the next thing. And they want to write a horror thriller thing next or something that I'd like this whole kind of spectrum of genre. I would say on one end is horror. On the other end is, is broad comedy. And so you have like horror, um, almost like psychological horror, or supernatural horror. Then I would say thriller. Then I would say action. Then I would say action comedy. Then I would say, you know, comedy, then broad comedy. You know what I'm saying? And I guess, I don't I guess drama would be like, I don't know. I guess, dra- I don't know. Drama would be kind of its own thing, but like an maybe an offshoot. There's like drama thrillers and action. Well, there's not really action dramas, but like, You know, there's like thrillers with dramatic elements or or more honestly drama with thriller elements or something like that. Um, But um, yeah, you know, it's more like that's the spectrum essentially. And so if you want to jump from one, if you want, if you wrote an action movie, you want to write a thriller. Okay, that makes sense to me. Do you know what I'm saying? If you're in an action movie, you want to write a horror movie. Okay, that's a little bit bigger of a jump. If you want to jump all the way from um, uh, horror all the way to comedy, broad comedy. Okay, that's like, That doesn't make sense. Doesn't the math doesn't add up in my head? You know, necessarily the same way that if you heard that a famous horror writer was writing a broad comedy or a famous comedy writer was writing a horror, you know, I'm saying actually there have been occasions of that existing, but it doesn't happen very often. It is more the exception than the rule. No, there are writers who can do everything, but again, those are exceptions, and it's important to start kind of with that. So, like, do I need people to come in and be that way? Absolutely. Uh, no, but it's helpful. Uh, but I would say the negative, the inverse is actually the not good thing, which is the people who come in and are willfully the other way, which is like, oh, the thing that I wrote, I have no interest in that pushing my career forward in that direction. I only want to write this other thing that's completely radically different. That's more worthy of an issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the lists and writers getting on lists being a very good thing or a list, I should say. Yes. Very few writers are on all kinds of lists. It's usually you're on a list, maybe two if you're really good at comedy and then maybe action or something like that. But can you describe what are these lists, who has them and why it's important for writers to try to get on these lists and how many writers are on the lists?
1: So first off, there's no one list that's kept by all people That the keeper of the list or Mm -hmm. anything like that. Every executive, every person has their own list. You know what I'm saying? But like, it's the same way that if I asked you know, any of your listeners or you, maybe like ten great action directors, right? You just come up with a list. You'd be like, okay, I really like Ridley Scott or I really like Gareth Evans or I really like, you know, Gina Prince Blythewood because the old or whatever, you know what I'm saying? Um like here's these great action directors. You know, you would have your own list. And so there isn't like one uniform list that you've got to get on. And like it's held by the keeper of the list in the deepest bowels of Hollywood. It doesn't exist that way what I mean is essentially like the list in the executive's head you know which usually by the way is governed by the movies they've seen and the screenplay they've read you know what I'm saying so hopefully this executive has read your screenplay and hopefully they loved your horror screenplay they're like you know what that person's really great make sure they're on my horror I want to make write them they're make sure they're on my horror list because I think they're really so when they think like oh, i have a cool horror idea or just read a great horror book or we remaking a great horror movie they're like Who's the ten writers that I like the most who are horror writers? It just comes to them, you know. So there is no like one list or anything like that. It's more just like an informal thing that an executive might they might executives might keep lists or they might just have like a list in their head, you know. So I would say, for example, just an example as a person who's done this because she's really specialized in is it, like so. Take my wife, who's also my client, Elise Hollander, who wrote um, who kind of broke in by writing Blonde Ambition, which was this biopic of madonna in the early years of madonna which obviously knows at least i were talking about it's kind of two things most obviously it's a music biopic of a famous musician and her rise to fame and has a lot of music in it it also i would say was a story of a woman a badass woman in a very male-dominated field in a very misogynist sexist and patriarchal time in a patriarchal industry who kind of overcame that And so it kind of launched her, I would say, specifically on two things, which is writing badass, great female characters who overcome obstacles, and obviously musics. Music, you know, biopic kind of stuff. So if you look at the things she's written since then, Queens of the Stone Age, which I think spoke to her kind of writing badass female characters going up against a male-dominated industry. And I think she did an amazing job of that. And that screenplay, I think, expanded her a bit more into thriller and action and darker material. Um, But, you know, she also did a rewrite on a, a kind of a music based project called talent show for universal. Um, you know, we wrote a. she wrote a, we sold a, a K-pop movie to 20th century, formerly, formerly Fox and Fox 2000, um, which is, you know, a, a K-pop you know, music movie. Um, she wrote something called murder the dance floor for Sony, which also the same people as she did Quinns in the stone age for, which is kind of like a murder mystery, with music and dance elements. So it speaks to like both the kind of thriller stuff she did at Queens of the Stone Age, as well as her music kind of background and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, and then she's working on something right now that I can't talk about, but it's also another music thing. So I would say if you're putting together a list of, you know, obviously you know badass female better writers of great female characters, you know, Elise is probably on it. But a hundred percent if you're putting together a list of people who Right. Music, you know, music movies, whether it's a music biopic and a Blonde Ambition or Bohemian Rhapsody, or even if it's just a movie that has musical elements, you know, she, you know, that's what she's doing with her, her K-pop movie. That's what she did with, with um, Murder on the Dance for. Um, so, like, she has done those. And so, you know, as you might imagine, you know, as our manager, I get brought, you know, up where people are looking for Elise to write it. And to be fair, like, there is a pretty broad spectrum of things because I think people really appreciate her writing and aren't just sticking her into that one box. But I would say a good chunk of it is music-based stuff. And if you are developing a music-based project, there's a very good chance that Elise is on your list, especially if it's female-oriented. The same with it like Anthony McCartan, who wrote Bohemian Rhapsody. It was just announced today that he is he wrote on spec and they just sold to Sony the Whitney Houston biopic, right? So, so I would assume if you're doing a music biopic list, Anthony McCartan has got to be right at the top of that. Cause he's writing the Bee Gees movie. He wrote the Whitney Houston movie. He wrote Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, he's also a great writer who wrote the two popes and wrote, um, the darkest hour. So he kind of has, has, you know, breadth and he's not just one thing, but it's just how those kind of things go, um, about being on those lists. And, you know, you want to kind of start off and you kind of start off kind of, you're the bottom of the list, but you're on the list. And then hopefully through continued success, you move up that list until you're like the person or you want the people to write. Like if you're going to write a political movie and you had all the money in the world, um, then why wouldn't you do put Aaron Sorkin on the top of your list? Do you know right. what I'm saying? Right. Right. Like, that's just obvious, right? If you're going to write a biopic, uh, you know, uh, do a biopic of a famous influential 20th century figure, especially if there's a kind of a political element, you put, Aaron Sorkin on there there's not even a question about that you know if you could afford it if he even writes things that he doesn't direct anymore you know so it's just one of those things it's 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 not as insidious or as secret as it necessarily thing it's merely as simple as um when I say 10 great horror writers who's the first first people that come to the executives list the executives name executives mind I should say
0: right yeah, and it comes into play when they have a project that's in development or they're trying to develop something like that. That's when they start me- taking meetings and they start at their list based on their budget, like you'd say. I
1: mean, honestly, what happens a lot is they most, like most of the time they've already, they're thinking of the people they've already met, mm. which is why it's so important to do general meetings and all this stuff. That I think early on in your career, you're like, why am I going on this, what we call the water bottle tour, the Evian tour, where I'm meeting all these millions of executives? But down the road, a year down the road, nine months down the road, they're like, oh, who do I want for this? Oh, yeah yeah, I met so-and-so. They're great. I would love to work with them. You know, Mm -hmm. they're cool. They also do take meetings, especially if you're well-known for doing a certain kind of thing. But I would say probably half the list is people they've already met before and they know, Mm -hmm.
0: you know. Right. And their writing (laughs) sort of gets them on that list or gets them the meetings with the executives who can make these decisions. What are some tips or advice you have for writers who may not feel comfortable in a face-to-face, in meetings? And obviously oh i remember that writer i read i liked their writing mm. and i really liked them when i met them mm-hmm. but maybe writers who may not feel as comfortable in person who may or actually now obviously it's it's a little different obviously during yeah pandemic, we'll, go back, we'll go back
1: to like one of these days if we we'll go back to normal but yeah right
0: but advice for writers who may be more of introverted or may be more shy or may have other issues how can they sort of tra- well, obviously reverse that to- chasm
1: You just don't be, just stop, stop it. (laughs) Um, you know what? Uh, I would say, and I remember having a conversation with my, my old boss, Andrew Marlow, who wrote Air Force One, the writing is what gets you in the door, but your, um, attitude, your openness to collaboration, your ability to connect with other people, um, that's at least 50% of it, you know? I mean, when we've talked about what I look for in clients, I look for people who are talented writers. That's what gets in the door. But I look for their attitude and their kind of like collaborative ability and their ability to connect with people in the room. That's a big, you know, that and drive are the two other big chunks of it. Um, and I know that, that for writers who are historically introverted, that is not great to hear. But it's a simple base reality of it, and very few people would disagree on I mean, it. If you watch adaptations, Charlie Kaufman having opens with him having lunch with Tilda Swinton, who's an executive, and he's just losing his mind, you know? Um, there's some of it's in his own mind. But, you know, I mean, look, if you're Charlie Kaufman or you're so incredibly talented, you can kind of write your way out of that. You're so good that they'll kind of overlook your awkwardness. But, like, if you're not, you're a normal person, um, you know, being a great writer gets you in the door, but they meet twelve great writers a week. You know what I'm saying? And the best thing that can happen if they come away from a general meeting saying, "Oh my God, I have to find a way to work with such you know X person." You know, um, we really connected. I really vibe because you're if you're going to work with someone on a movie or even on a or on a definitely on a TV show. If you're getting staff, if you're getting staffed on a TV show, being someone who connects with other people is even more important because you're going to be spending eight, possibly more, more hours a day, five days a week in a writer's room with the showrunner and or the other writers. Um, and they better like you because my God, if if that person is a weird personality, that's a lot to deal with, you know? And so that's just a big portion, you know? Um, one thing I have talked about, so my clients who are a little bit more like, honestly, they come back and they're like, hey, that meeting was like awkward or weird or like, I didn't really connect with that person. I actually tell them to like do like Toastmasters International or to, um, not that I've ever done it, but like to do like an improv class. You know, I know Elise before, it wasn't like she was like, oh my God, I'm going to do this. I think she just wanted to go to UCB um, uh, and like try some classes. She did a couple of classes from that. And I think sometimes she talked about like, oh yeah, when well, I'm in the room, like if she'll sometimes do like a writer's room, not for a TV show, but they're brainstorming ideas for a feature or something. Um, this, this is a real thing that happens. Um, and she's like, oh, I just kind of use some of my improv experience to riff this or that. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. The kind of and then um, kind of stuff, you know. Um, or I forget the term. I screwed up the term. But yeah.
0: You mentioned Toastmasters International. Is that what you said? What, what I don't know. My
1: buddy, my buddy Bobby did it. Uh-huh. And he said it helped him. I don't know. It sounds like really antiquated. It sounds like a bunch of people sitting around a smoky room going like, and here's the Jimmy. So I have no idea. I feel like one of my clients might've done it, but what I honestly, I don't know what I recommend to people is UCB Hmm. or, you know, or any kind of improv class to kind of get you out of your shell a little bit. You know Um, that's what I have recommended to people. I mean, I know it sounds crazy because writing is such an introverted thing, but it's just a base reality. If you ask any working screenwriter, they'll they may like not like it but they won't dispute that it's a big part of the industry for better or for worse
0: right absolutely um a couple episodes ago we had a conversation with dan seco literary manager from schemers entertainment and where we did sort of a, a screenwriting representation 101 where we sort of broke down the very basics of how to get a a rep, a manager agent. And and when you know you're ready and all these types of things, if you want to listen to that, you can definitely check that one out. Um, It's with Dan Seiko. But with you, I actually wanted to take the next step and maybe do a little screenwriting representation 201. And what happens sort of when you first sign with a manager, what that looks like. So maybe we can start off with first, how often do you like to see a new script, ideally, from a writer when you sign a writer?
1: Uh, whenever it's good, um, <laughs> you know. I, I don't. Re- that's that's a good question because I don't. It's rare it happens, but it's rare that a mm-hmm. screenplay comes into my inbox and I don't know anything about it. It does happen, and it is a little bit of a tricky conversation. But how I like to work with my clients <clears throat> is you know, let's say I sign a new client, um, more often than not, and there are exceptions to this, but more often than not, um, what happens is we'll talk about, you know, we kind of talked this a little briefly, like, what are your next ideas? Hmm. And we'll kind of, what I ask them to do is to send me a, 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 once we start working together, unless they're already kind of midway through something, uh, let's start with new ideas. And so they send me like, you know, a page, two pages, three pages of what their new ideas are. And I kind of go through those ideas. And then I say, hey, this one's a good idea, these two are good ideas, none of these are good ideas, you know. I mean, look, what I should say, you know, for all the people like, I mean, like, who is he to say whatever, is like, look, I, I'm not the employer of the writer. The writer wants to write anything, they can absolutely go ahead and do so, you know. But it is, I view it as my job to be their advisor to say, if I'm saying that I don't think they should write something, our interests generally are aligned because I don't get paid till they get paid, you know. And if I thought something was super commercial or could sell or get made, or usually when I'm saying, I don't think this is the right idea is because it doesn't feel like a movie or a TV show to me or like something I will get them notice. It doesn't feel like I can sell it or it feels unique. Usually the, the biggest thing is that either a it doesn't seem like a movie or a TV show. It just doesn't feel like there's enough there or it feels really similar to a lot of things that are out there in the marketplace. And so, once we land an idea, we'll outline it to get. Well, they'll outline it, and I'll give them notes on it. And then they'll go off to draft, and they'll write multiple drafts. But I'll give them lots and lots and lots of notes on it, and so on and so forth. Um, you know, and how often do I want them to be writing a new screenplay? I'd rather them write them write on one amazing screenplay that I feel really excited about, that the concept is really solid, than three mediocre ones that I don't know anything about. You know. Um, and I think the better question is how often would I like them to come to me with new ideas? And it's like, obviously that depends on their current script being done, but like, no, yeah, I would say, you know, every two to three weeks or so, whenever they've got a good run of ideas, I would say, um, you know, uh, that's kind of it, you know, but I, you know, as a manager, um, I'm very dependent on, I, I don't chase my clients down if I'm not hearing from them. Um, unless we have like a deadline on an assignment or something like that, or like, oh my god, we gotta get this thing out, you know, before the end of the year. Um, then I'm not chasing them because if they're not writing, it's not my job to get them to write, you know. I'm not paying them a salary and there's no ticking clock. There are clients, you know, who I like and, and but they've maybe taken a step back from writing for a year or two. You know what I'm saying? And like I didn't drop them because they're not taking any up any room on my roster in the sense that like, if you're not taking up my emotional or, or mental or, you know, bandwidth or time, then like, why drop them? You know, I'm sitting here and ready, but like at the same time, when they come back, it's always tricky to like get them kind of back up and running and stuff like that. And like, maybe at that point I've gotten busy or whatever, but like, I don't, I don't, I don't drop people in that sense. Um, You know, where like I haven't heard from them in so it's really up to them and the speed they want to work at. But I, I, and I think all my clients would agree with this. I'm pretty responsive. If you send me something, I usually within a day or two at most, I email you back and set a time for us to chat within the next week or two. Um, and then we discuss it. Cause so I like to set my, I, I will email and be like, let's set a call or, you know, normal times a meeting. Um, uh, before I've even read the material, because I know we're, I'm going to read it and have thoughts on it. So why wait until I've read it to schedule something? So I'm very responsive. Um, but at the same time, it's in their hands. It's how they want to operate.
0: Mm-hmm. <coughs> and you would mention having ideas as a writer, coming in with ideas, and then you guys can go through and filter and you can sort of, expound on those ideas in terms of what you think is most commercial, what feels most like a a film or television idea, that kind of thing. And then they can go off and write. What does the early stage of uh, a newer writer's career look like in terms of they have a, a spec feature or a pilot, they have ideas, you're helping them work on their next screenplay, uh, where... Again, this is very general because obviously every client is different. Every client's needs is different. Every client is at a different stage. But where does that go from there? You just sign them you on know, your roster. You just sign them yeah, on your roster.
1: Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's kind of one kind of question, kind of gateway question kind of going to end up in. And I, and I talked about this in my intention thread. A lot of times I'll sign a client, however I find them. Um, and I'll read a screenplay and I really like the screenplay but I don't think it's necessarily a screenplay that I want to take out to the town and show everybody Um, because I like the screenplay. I like the voice in it. I think they're talented but I don't think the screenplay itself is something saleable. You know, I don't think it's something that um, I can walk out and sell easily. It feels a little familiar. It feels uncommercial or small but I think they're really talented. So a lot of times I will not I honestly, maybe half, if not the majority of the time, that's the scenario of, like, you're talented, but I don't think this script is conceptually, usually, reflective of your abilities. And I want to make sure that when we make that first impression that people are like, whoa, oh, my God, you know what I'm saying? Because I bring them, like, a screenplay that's, like, well-written but interesting, they're like, well, what do I do with this? And then I'm like, so then it would take another nine months to bring them the next one, they're like, oh, yeah, I already met this person, cool, you know? I When I I bring them something, I want it to be like, whoa, like really launch them on the scene, you know? Um, There are times, like I would say Chris Devlin, who wrote The Wretched Emily Derringer, we changed one sentence, maybe two, and that's from the draft that I read in the Austin Film Festival, which, by the way, it didn't even win its category in the Austin Film Festival. It came in second in the Austin Film Festival in the genre category. Um, uh, But that ended up getting him reps at UTA. That ended up on the blacklist that was such an amazing screenplay that everyone in town read it It wasn't commercial it was really weird and different and I was described as Heather's as if Tim Burton had directed it um it's an amazing screenplay um but we also knew I mean I think there's a world where that one day might get made it's got a great director and actor on it now um but it wasn't like it's not a super commercial script we knew we weren't going to sell it to like Warner Brothers for a million dollars or something you know um but what we did know is it would announce his voice, hit launch him as a really specific, interesting voice. Um and then, you know, eventually it took a minute because he was writing some different things and trying to figure out the right thing for him. He wrote Cobweb and you know, again that was something where, you know, his agent and myself and Jeff Portnoy, his managers were like, We love this screenplay. We don't know if it can sell, but we love it. Ended up selling to Lionsgate and was on the blacklist and topped the blood list and really launched him as a client a client he recently just wrote Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot for legendary. um, And there's some really exciting stuff going on in his career. So that was a screenplay where it came in. It was so good that we were like, okay, I think we can definitely everyone can read it. And there's a screenplay. I just read off the blacklist website that I love so much that I'm definitely taking that out to buyers, you know, as is it's like, it's just good. And I think it's commercial, you know, so that does happen. But I would say that's the exception, not the rule. Sometimes, and this is less often, but it does happen. I'll find a screenplay and I'll um, I'll be like, "Hey, this is good, but it needs some work." And I'll spend a few months doing the work on it to get where I think it needs to get to to kind of demonstrate the writer's ability. But I would say the majority of the time, I read screenplays, and they're good but not good enough to like, I think to like take it out to the town. And so we start working on something new from scratch, that de- what will best demonstrate their voice and their talent, usually on a more commercial concept, or at least on a more unique concept. Um, and then I would say a certain percentage of the time less, but it still happens. The screenplay will need some work and I'll work on it with them. And then we'll get it to a place where you feel like it's good. And we'll take it to the town. And then, you know, um, and then, you know, a very few number of times where I can count it maybe on one or two hands. The screenplay is just so good that I'm like, yeah, we're good. To, you know, minimal work, if any, we're good to take this out to the town. It doesn't happen very often, you know, um, but it does happen. But, you know, not not a super amount of time. So that's kind of the early days of the writer where while they may have written a screenplay, they'll, they'll definitely have written a screenplay that put them on my radar. It's just a matter of what are we doing with that screenplay. So that's kind of the early days. And, you know, sometimes it's just so good that we're taking it out and, we're, and they're doing a bunch of general meetings off of it and maybe like we sell it or whatever. But usually more often, even if we've done that, we're also working on the next idea together, you know? So usually it's either we're working on, our, on, the, on the thing that's going to launch into the town together or we've taken out something to show them off um, and, you know, and they're kind of, we're still working on the next thing, you know?
0: And so you had mentioned things that, that newer clients can do in terms of, you know, having ideas and uh, coming to you and then you guys can work on ideas together Uh, to develop a concept that may be more commercial or may work better conceptually, that kind of thing. What other things can can a writer do? And I know that if you sign them, you you think that they're talented. And after their first meeting, you at least think that they are a decent reflection of of your company, um, Mm -hmm. meaning they're not temperamental they don't have a lot of issues you know that kind of thing what are some of the things that a writer can do to work their way down your list of priorities meaning uh not necessarily horrible behavior like throwing a tantrum but things that they that some writers do that may work them down your client list and eventually possibly off your client list um obviously the things they can do is continue to write great material and, and be a great professional, but what are some of the things that, that writers may not realize they're doing that are working them, they're working against them in terms of working professionally?
1: You know, the simple answer is, you know, uh, working with a client as a partnership, you know, sometimes I see people on Twitter being like agents are our employees, you know, I'm not an agent obviously, but you know, agents aren't your employees. They're not. It just doesn't work that way. They're your partners because an agent doesn't get paid until you get paid. Mm -hmm. Same way a lawyer doesn't get paid. Well, there are exceptions with lawyers, but the more the most normal agent, sorry, the most normal lawyer relationship out there. And I actually just learned this was kind of an invention of Tom Pollock, who just passed away and who was a a super famous lawyer and ran Universal for a number of years and was um, Ivan Reitman's partner over Montecito. Um, He had invented this idea that lawyers maybe invented, but certainly popularized it, that lawyers take 5% of their clients' thing, uh, work, um, you know, uh, money, as opposed to, um, you know, charging an upfront fee that they may not be able to uh, pay for, uh, you know, uh, early in their career. Mm-hmm. Um, So usually a lawyer will only take 5% of your money. Um, and then uh, a manager takes 10%. But anyways, my point being that, like, you know, agents, lawyers, managers, we're not your employees, because you're not paying us anything, we're your partners, and it's a partnership. Um, And obviously, at the end of the day, the writer is the person who creates material, but it's our job to advise and to try to sell and to try to make the money. Um, And so for me, where I have had issues is when clients, like I said, I'm not their employer, but like at a certain point, if they're kind of going against what we've discussed or what we've promised or how they've said things are going to go, um, constantly, then it's a little bit like, well, what's my point being here? Because you're not listening to me. It doesn't seem like you value my advice. It seems like you do the things that we ask you not to do. Um, you know, trust goes away. I, I did have a client recently where I don't want to go into too much detail, but you know, cause I think they're a really good person and a really talented writer but it just became clear that I don't think I was the right person for them, or at least the relationship was perfect because we had worked out an idea they were going to write. We out, we spent a long time outlining it. And then they just decided they didn't want to write it after, you know, spending three, four, six months working on it. Wow. Um, really disappointing for me because I'd put a lot of time and energy into it. And they just walked away from it um, and wrote something that I, we had discussed them not writing. And they were like, here you go. I just did it without telling you. And it was you know, it's kicking the teeth. And there I had also introduced them to agents and they were talking, they were emailing and talking to those agents without um, me being on those emails. And then the agent was reaching out to me because like, we're close. We have a lot of clients. I brought them to this agent and saying, hey, did you know about this? Have you read this new pilot? No, I haven't read this new pilot. I don't even know it existed. You know what I'm saying? Because I wasn't on the email and that was a conscious choice that the writer made not to inform me on that stuff mm. so when it stops feeling like we're working together and it feels more like working at cross purposes or what your agenda is is radically different from mine when the simply put when the trust is gone that's when you have an issue um you know I have had clients write screenplays without telling me I'm here you go and the, you know, some of the times, you know, it works out. Okay. Like there are definitely clients, like there are certain clients that I've just understood that they do, they do their own thing, but the quality is so good or like, or, or they'll like suggest the idea to me and I'll be like, that's great. And then they just go and do it them, themselves, you know? Um, and while I'll still give notes on it and whatever. I'm still involved in like the draft or whatever, you know, different people have different processes. Um, but more often than not, when clients, have been like, here's a screen, like multiple times have been like, I wrote something and I didn't even consult you on it. It's just not the right relationship over time, you know? Once, it's not the world's biggest deal, but multiple times because I'm never going to have to go there and try to sell it and, and get it to people and put my name and my, my my reputation behind it. And if it's something that I don't believe in and I don't think is quite good, there, there, there's only been once, I think once, that I never, I refused to take something out and it was a screenplay that a client wrote. He's like, I wrote in two weeks. He it was, it was very frustrated by Trump being inaugurated, which, like, I get it. But, like, he wrote the screenplay that was, like, just, like, just nonsense, you know? Um, to be fair, this was also a client. This is crazy. He had come to Los Angeles. He didn't live in Los Angeles. He lived somewhere far away. He came to Los Angeles didn't tell me he was in Los Angeles, reached out to someone he had previously met through me, an executive, and said, hey, can we have a meeting? When I asked him why he's after the fact that the executive called me and was like, hey, I just met with your client. I was like, what? He's in LA? He doesn't even live in LA. I didn't even know he was in town. When I asked him why he, A, had set the meeting, he was like, oh, I said it. Because and, he, and like my my exec, executive buddy was like, he's like, yeah, and he brought like a weird friend of his to the meeting. He's like, oh well, I got mistaken. I thought that he lived, he worked on the Paramount lot, which this guy didn't. So my friend wanted to see the Paramount lot, so I thought I'd set a meeting with him just so we could walk around the Paramount lot. And um. I was like, what? And then I was like, why didn't you tell me? Can He's like, oh well, I was meeting with producers. What an opportunity! And I didn't really want to give you the commission on it, so I didn't tell you about it. But here's the thing: like, the money was so little. And it meant so much to him, that difference of 10% on that. I would have, wouldn't have taken the commission anyways. But like he was actively, I would think the biggest, baddest thing was him setting a meeting with one of my relationships, someone I'm so close to, without telling me so that his buddy could walk around a lot, which by the way, he screwed up and it wasn't even the right executive. He got mistaken about which executive it was, you know? And so it was just an embarrassing thing. And it was just a real breach of trust on all, all ends. And so we're no longer working together. But anyways, same guy, no surprise, wrote a screenplay in one week and said, like, let's take this out. And I was like, what is this? You yeah. know, so those are the things, really breaches of trust, you know, um, where like the game plan, what, we're, what the game plan is, what we've decided, you've gone completely off that game. The game plan I put a lot of time and art and effort into, you have decided to throw it out the window mm-hmm. for not a particularly good reason other than you know we didn't talk through it. you just did it you know so at that point what's my point of being involved in the relationship anyways you're not listening to me you're not interested in my thoughts so what's the point of me sticking around you know
0: right plus i think going off and writing their own thing without not your approval but without talking to you about it and coming to sort of a consensus Mm-hmm. is also that you spend your days talking to executives, talking to producers. You understand the marketplace. And so you don't want them wasting their time writing something, a spec of something that you've actually, hey, maybe you've read a spec or two specs that have gone out recently that didn't sell from the same exact subject matter That's or.
1: Exactly. And I had a client, um, and we're not like working together, they're a great person, but they wrote a $100 million disaster film parody. Uh, that was like a parody of like day after tomorrow kind of stuff. Mm. Um, And it was interesting, but like no one was going to make it because it was a hundred million dollar broad comedy. That was a parody of films. And I was like, but nobody wants this comedies are at this point, very cheap. It didn't feel novel all this kind of stuff. And so I didn't really, there wasn't much for me to do with it, you know? And also it wasn't a very good writing sample because nobody wants to make hundred million dollar comedy. So they're not looking for writing samples for hundred million dollar parody disaster parodies, you know? And so, yeah, it was just one of those things where, um, you know, they were very talented, but it was something that if we had discussed it in advance, I could have told them, I don't think there's much for me to do with this. And yes, my, what I do all day long is I read the trades. I talk to executives, you know, Sometimes clients write something, and I'm like, "Hey, by the way, this just sold a month, three months ago. This exact concept. Mm-hmm. So nobody's going to want it, you know. And that's my job, you know. And like, I think you're right. It's like I'm not, I'm not sitting here improving things, but what I am is consulting on things. And I don't have a problem with it. I don't love it, but like, I don't have a problem necessarily if a client's like, "Hey, I'm going to write this thing," and but I really feel passionate about it, passionately about it. Um, but it's my job to say, "Hey, maybe don't write a hundred million dollar Western." starring teenagers because there's no teenage movie stars and that's really expensive and nobody makes met westerns anymore now if you write it because you just gotta write it that's fine but don't be surprised if I can't take it to anybody because nobody wants it and if it doesn't do anything for your career you know
0: right right.
1: and you know and also I'm not gonna take it super wide because I know that nobody wants it and it's gonna make you look bad and it's not gonna be super helpful to me you know
0: right or at the very best it just goes out and nobody shows any interest and they've just spent six months writing something that you told what them would the not point? sell. Right, right. You
1: know, what was the point? That's, again, writing with intention, you know? Right. like what? And, like, I guess sometimes people got to write the thing. And, look, to be fair, if Chris Devlin told me, hey, I'm writing a story about an eight-year-old boy who... So Devlin, like, calls me up. But he's like, hey, man, I got a new screenplay. I'm like, great. Because the last screenplay he'd written was Richard Emily Derringer, which is about a 13-year-old girl who's a serial killer. I was like, dude, as long as it's the main character is not a child, we're going to sell this one. He's like, ah, funny story. <laughs> I know it was about an eight-year-old boy who heard noises. But you know what? It was an amazing piece of writing. And it was so good and so interesting conceptually that it sold. And I think if he told me, hey, I'm going to write this thing, I would never tell Chris not to write something. But I would say, hey, like, here's the things to be concerned about. Mm-hmm. And I think he knew all that and he still wrote it. And he didn't necessarily expect. He only knew it was a really good piece of writing that would show off his writing, which it did. And it got him text James and got him a lot of attention, but it did end up selling because it was so freaking good, you know? Um, and so for me, it's about being looped in. So I can tell you like, Hey, if you want to write this, obviously go with God and write it. But like, here are the downsides to writing it. Mm-hmm. And here's what you can expect with it. And Chris absolutely knew it was a tough sell, but You know, it was also an amazing piece of writing. So even as a writing sample, it was, it was very unique, you know? So like that, that, that was a good thing. We definitely knew, I knew it was going to end up in the blacklist because it was just so beautifully written. I mean, if you've read the screenplay, which you absolutely should, this is insane, but like, there's no periods in it. Every line of description, there's periods in the dialogue, but there's no periods in the lines of description. And each line of description gets its own line. Um, And it's written almost poetically. And Chris doesn't write every screenplay like that. It's not how he does it, but it worked for the screenplay. It was very evocative of a tone and a mood and a style, you know. And so it hmm. just shows you what an inventive writer he is, you know.
0: Yeah. No. And then that's something that would be definitely memorable if it was well written. Yeah. And, and not in a bad way. Like this person doesn't know how to use punctuation, <laughs> no. but like this, this is like well, well, you said, poetic and interesting. People in
1: the, there's people in the. I saw people talking shit about it on Twitter. And uh, like well-known writers being like, I just read a screenplay that's no periods. Apparently, that's the thing. And I said to Chris, "I'm like, dude, you reinvented." But yeah, people were salty, man. Some people were salty. People are salty when you break the rules, Mm -hmm. you know. And it's like, you know what? Break the rules if it works, it works. You know, it'll definitely work for him.
0: Right. But I think breaking the rule with a conscious decision, correct, is different than breaking a rule because you don't necessarily know what the rules are.
1: Yeah. That's like my whole thing. I did a whole Twitter thing on it, which is you need to be like, I think it was, um, Picasso. And he said a, he said a version of, he said it much more poetically, but the, the iteration was you need to learn the rules. So you can learn how to break them. Mm-hmm. You know, I need to learn how to paint. So I could, I could, I could unlearn how to paint, you know? Um, and, um, and I think that's important is that you need to be able to break the rules but only, but know you're doing it and do it with, a, with purpose, mm-hmm. you know? Um, that's, I think, the thing, you know? It's like, that's right. the difference, you know? Between greatness and, you know, mediocrity.
0: Right. I mean, Tarantino can write a 200-page screenplay because he's directing the thing and putting it together and can all of a sudden decide to say, hey, you know what? My 200-page screenplay is now going to be two movies, Kill Bill Part 1 and Part 2. The average yeah. screenplay, screenwriter can't do that. And well, do I, mean,
1: that. I would I would actually go back and do, even more simply, Reservoir Dogs. I remember watching mm. that movie. This is a true story. I watched the movie; it's on VHS, and I I I put it in, and it opens essentially at the end. I, or I thought, I'm like, what the hell is going on? And then the credits rolled, and it was like the full like every credit, and I was like, I literally like looked ejected. It looked at it, and I was like, put it back, and I'm like, okay, clearly this thing wasn't rewound when somebody returned it to the video store. I rewound it again. And I was like, Oh no, this is the open, mm-hmm. you know, but like he broke all these rules. He, he, you know, the rest of the dogs is told out of sequence, you know, not that right. no one had ever done that before, but like it felt not very novel and weird, you know, but he broke it with a purpose in terms of expressing something, you know? And so that's the difference is like, I'm doing it this way, but there's a coherent reason and rationale for why I'm doing the same way that Chris has a coherent rationale for why there's no periods and why each line of description gets its own thing. He's like, that felt the best way to evoke the feeling that the character had and that I feel like that the movie deserves, you know?
0: Right. There's a conscious thought behind it. And, and he was able to Especially express in terms, of
1: pre- in terms of presentation. Sure. You know what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Same absolutely. Like if you go
1: back and you read early Tony Clayton? Sorry. Early Tony Gilroy scripts or Bill Goldman scripts they don't use scene headings. It never says interior law office. It says like blah, blah, blah. And this isn't in like caps. There's no interior. There's no day. There's nothing, you know? Mm-hmm. Now look, if you read the spec screenplay version or not, it wasn't a spec. He sold it. But like you read the early version, then you read the produced version. The produced version has those interiors because guess what? When they produced it, they were like, the, the, the line producer or someone was like, yo, it's cool that you did this thing. But like, we need to know for the schedule. <laughs> right. <laughs> Right. And what the are and all that kind of stuff. So I'm sure, you know, if one cowboy goes into production, they'll like do all kinds of stuff to it that isn't maybe possibly isn't there now, but like it worked for its primary audience, which was executives and directors and talent, you know, hopefully, you know?
0: Right. Absolutely. Um, So uh, you're going to stick around for a few minutes to chat on the unscripted after show with us. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, so I guess the last thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, as we end a lot of these podcasts, is advice for the newer writers out there. Uh, what What advice do you want to give them? Words Just of encouragement. Follow,
1: follow my Twitter thread, my, my Twitter persona. I'll give you all the advice you need. No, um, <laughs> I, mean, I feel like I'm like, that's what I do all day long on the Twitter thing, which is really, it's interesting. If there wasn't a pandemic, I am... Oh, sure I would never have been as active on Twitter. So that's kind of been an interesting outgrowth of that whole thing. Um, yeah, I mean, like, it's simple. Read as much as you can, write as much as you can, watch as much as you can. You know, if you want to become a better writer, that's the way to do it is read as many screenplays, obviously, as you can. But, you know, read books, you know, read articles, read the newspaper, read plays um read anything read any good writing you know and that'll make you a better writer um watch as many things whether it's you know obviously movies or tv shows or even short films or plays or what have you um and then write write as much as you can um and you know it's a you know if you want to get if you want to like lift more weight you gotta keep going to the gym you know what i'm saying and it's the same thing with being a writer you write your first is that, that great bit from Writing for Fun and Profit by Lennon and Grant, which, you know, I just did a little thread on it. I said it was like the, the number one book that writers should read. And it's a phenomenal book. Um, and um, and one of the things they say is, you know, write a screenplay. Write your first screenplay. put it, Make it as good as possible. Put it in a drawer. Go and write your second screenplay. And then make, I think they said write a third one or something. And then come back and read your first one. You'll be like, this is terrible. You know? Right. Um, and that's not always the case. Uh, this is a little thing I don't talk about too much because it makes people insane, but the first screenplay that Elise ever wrote was Blonde Ambition, which somehow, like, you know. Um, but, you know, more often than not, that's the case. That's certainly the case for most people, you know. I mean, Elise had been writing, like, short scripts and stuff like that, so it didn't come out of nowhere for her either, you know. Um, but, yeah, it is one of those things where, like, you just do those things and that's how much, what makes you a better writer, you know. That's it.
0: Right. Uh, and av- actually definitely do follow john on twitter at, at john zauzerny that's j-o-h-n-z-a-o-z-i-r-n-y uh, and if you have questions about the craft or business of writing send us a tweet to at script scribes or an email to ask at scripts and thanks john as always it's great ta- chatting with you and we'll catch up with you in just a few minutes on the unscripted after show on patreon and thank you all for listening